Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high. Let's sing that again. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross. My debt to pay from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on high. Father, your name deserves to be lifted on high because you are high and lifted up and your glory fills the temple, Lord. It says in the Psalms that your glory eventually will, will fill the whole earth in the same way that the waters cover the, cover the seas, Lord, and we praise you for that day. Lord, it feels very often when we take our eyes off you that, Lord, we're in the minority and we feel overwhelmed, Lord, by the world and its ways and we even forget, Lord, that you reign, that you rule, that you're sovereign and supreme. And this is your world. The earth is, is the Lord's and everything that's in it is yours, including us. And so help us to remember that. Remind us of that today, your greatness. And remind us of the fact that Jesus came from heaven to earth to show us the way. And not only to show us the way, to pave the way in dying for our sins and making that opening, that entrance, that opportunity for us to come into the very heaven that he left and came to this earth from. Father, would you please visit with us today in the power of your spirit, on the basis of your word, for the sake of the Lord Jesus, we pray and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Today is the beginning of the end. That is, <laughs> it's the end of last week's message. Remember the marathon message? And it's the beginning of a new Easter series, which concludes on the 31st of March, 
which is Easter Sunday. And this series is called The Resurrection, Simple Things. And our aim is to allow this subject to reverberate in our hearts over the course of the next six weeks, leading up to the climax of the resurrection on Easter Sunday, which is only five weeks away. Some of the topics we're going to be covering over the next few weeks are, next week, the necessity of Christ's resurrection. Then we're going to look at believers' resurrection. Then the nature of resurrection. Then the assurance of resurrection. And then Easter Sunday, we're going to have our celebration service um, called He Lives. Jesus is alive. And there's going to be different brothers coming to share um, just over the course of these next few weeks. My name's Robert. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. And today, our topic is... Hmm. The evidence of Christ's resurrection. The evidence of Christ's resurrection. And I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, which is where we were, where we left off last week. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 to 11. And I'm going to start reading as you turn. Now, I would remind you, says Paul, brothers... And sisters, if you like, of the gospel. The gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, So we preach, and so you believed. Resurrection. Resurrection is coming back to life from the dead, never to die again. Resurrection is coming back to life from the dead, never to die again. And it's not reincarnation which is the rebirth of the soul in another body. They call it transmigration of the soul, or samsara. Anybody remember monkey magic? I mean, you've got to be up there. You've got to be in your late 30s, 40s, maybe 50s. Oh, my gosh. Samsara. They, used to, they always was trying to get to samsara. <laughs> 
We ain't talking about reincarnation. And we're neither talking about resuscitation, which is to revive someone that was unconscious. We're talking about resurrection, which is coming back to life from the dead, never to die again. The resurrection, that is the ultimate resurrection, speaks about Jesus coming back from the dead. And his resurrection is a pattern for our resurrection, that is those that believe in Christ, amen? It's a glimpse of our glorious future. This is what we aim to unpack over the coming weeks. Now, quickly looking back, let me give you a brief summary of the previous two weeks in two verses, verse one and two. Over the past fortnight, we took a minute to look at the major, the major headline topic of the Bible, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, which is mentioned in verse one. And it's something that Paul felt inclined to remind these Corinthian Christians about. And it's the gospel or the good news that he had previously preached to them. This wasn't new news to them. They'd heard, they'd heard this news before. Paul had preached and they had believed. They had received this message. And it's a message that they began to construct their lives on. It was a rock-solid message that held promise for the future, not just temporarily, but eternally. They had an eternal hope in which they, they now could stand. Upon believing this message, they had been saved or justified. But as they continued to believe this message, they were now being saved or sanctified or changed. They were being transformed into the ultimate image and likeness of God, like a, like a caterpillar turning into a, transforming into a beautiful butterfly. If, if they continue to hold fast to that which they had received. Hold on to that ball, boy. And this news, as, as we listen to it, although 2,000 years later, right? It's still current. New news for them at one point that became old news for them. For us is, to some degree, ancient news, but it's still current because it's still currently saving, it's still currently changing, and it's still currently available to be received. And what specifically is this news? Well, it's that Jesus died for our sins. And you'd be like, and? Jesus died for my sins, so? Okay, well, let me try and break it down for you. I hope I'm not offending anyone because I've got my hat on. You look nice coal in here, right? <laughs> Up in t-shirt last week. I don't know what was, I don't know what I was thinking. 
So let me try and break this down, right? It, just in case you're that person thinking, yeah, and what, Jesus died for my, like what? Fellas, all you single brothers and unmarried men, you see all them girls that you sexed up? All the single ladies. Single ladies who you allowed them mans to sex you up. Don't put your hand up. If you're single and having sex, you're guilty of sin. If you are publicly or privately looking at pornography, moving or still images, is sin. Masturbation, oral sex, homo or heterosexual is still sin. How many of you know the only safe sex is no sex or marriage? Welcome to Christianity. Anything other than no sex or sex within marriage is a sin. Now, I only picked one out of the ten. I picked the seventh commandment that talks about sexual inappropriate behavior. This is just one of the very sins that Jesus Christ died for. And I'm just saying, if you're sitting there and you're like, so, hopefully that begins to help you to understand and appreciate just the gravity of the gospel. See, I've been talking a lot about the good news, but brace yourself for some bad news. If Jesus doesn't die for your sins, guess who's going to die? You are. Now, you're going to die physically, and people pretend like that's not going to happen, right? Until we get touched by death. We've got a family in our church right now that have just been touched by the reality of death. And even when we get touched by it, Sometimes we still want to ignore it. Still want to take it like a cork and push it underwater like, it, like it's not reality. And sometimes that's what we do with our sin. It says in Romans 1. We suppress God's truth that is very apparent. I mean, it's, it's destroying society, right? And it destroys our lives on a personal level, yet we want to pretend that it don't exist. But I mean, you know, that cork just keeps popping up. You are going to die because of your sin physically. That should terrify you. But what should petrify you is that you're going to die spiritually. Technically, you're already dead if you're not a Christian that is dead spiritually, obviously you're alive physically. 
dead spiritually and still in your sin. Ephesians 2 talks about those of us who used to actually be in that predicament. Dead. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, and you, speaking of believers, Christians, you were dead in the, tr- in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It's true for every single one of us. Following the course of this world. And sometimes the course of this world is like a current and, it, and it's so hard not to get carried along by it. And, as a, and you, have to, you have to swim against that thing. Otherwise, like white water rapids, it will just... Following the course of this world. And when you, want to, when you stand against it, you become so bait. And it's easier just to go with the flow. Following the course of this world. This, this, is, this is how we used to live as Christians. Following the prince of the power of the air. How many of you know we were ruled? We were under the dominion of a kingdom. The Bible calls it the kingdom of darkness. Following the prince of the power of the air, who is the devil, by the way. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Remember last week, there's only two groups. Are you in the obedient category or are you in the disobedient category? Are you in the kingdom of darkness or are you in the kingdom of light? Is, is God the king of your life or is Lucifer, Satan, the devil, the prince, governing and ruling your life? See, amongst verse 3, who we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. If it feels good, and we're by nature children of wrath, that means under God's judgment. John chapter 3. Under God's judgment, like the rest of mankind. See, but if you're a believer, you've been made alive. But if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, you're actually dead in your sin. And the issue is you don't want to die physically in your spiritual state of death. Because if you do, then your spiritual state becomes permanent. If you're alive physically and your heart is beating, there's opportunity for you to make that transition into the kingdom of light. I don't know if I switched them over. One was, king, one was darkness, one was light. I don't know which one's which. You might have heard it said, if you're born twice, you die once. But if you're born once, you die twice. That is, if you're born once, physically, like all of us that are in here, right? We all qualify for the first birth. But then if you're born again, twice, then you only die once. That is physically. If you're born again, believer, you only got one death to quote-unquote look forward to. Not that that's something to look forward to, but I suppose it is as a believer though, right? Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord Jesus. 
But you know what? If you're born once, which we all have been, naturally, physically, and you and you're not born again, then you will experience two deaths. One, obviously, physically, but two, spiritually, permanently. See, I don't want, I don't want you sitting there thinking, what, Jesus died for my sins, like, so what? It's deep. Point is, there's a penalty to pay for those sins. And you'll be like, rah, Robert, man. <laughs> you just jump straight in. You never even make a little, like, warm up a little bit. Not that you can warm up in this building, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. Robert, you just, you, just, you just went in. Well, sometimes in order to appreciate the good news, you've got to hear what? You've got to hear the bad news. And I share that because we're going somewhere. We're, we're talking about the resurrection, and I want you to understand the implications when we get there. Amen? Have you received this good news, and are you holding on to it? You know, in a postmodern world, which is what we live in, people say, I believe what I choose to believe, and what I choose to believe is true. Like, don't argue with me. You can believe what you want to believe. That's fine. I'm not going to, I don't business with you. But don't business, don't push your nose in my business because what I believe for me is true for me. That's postmodern thinking. And to some degree, you know, to some degree, the Bible is going to challenge that full frontal. And my aim is to challenge that by presenting this potentially opposing perspective using 1 Corinthians 15. Now, in Corinth at this time, people were asking the question, will people really come back to life from the dead? Come on now. We see when Paul preached in Athens, right? The people were like, what? Resurrection from the dead? Some will laugh at that and mock, and they did. Some will say, mm, I'm not really sure. And obviously you've got the category that do believe that. Will people really come back from the dead? Do you remember the Sadducees and the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were a, a political religious group. It was a bit like the House of Commons. You've got Labour on one side and you've got Conservatives or Conservative slash, what are they again? Liberal Party. Right, but two, you had the Pharisees and you had the Sadducees in the Sanhedrin, right, which is the Jewish ruling, governing authority. The Pharisees, they were cool with resurrection and talk about life after death. The Sadducees now, even though they were a religious group, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Again, I switched them over. They should be over here, the Sadducees. And they, they're liberal. And you see, the Sadducees, some... It's easy to, something to help you remember. They say this, the, the, this the, you know that the, they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> it's cheesy, but it helps, right? It wasn't uncommon at this time for Jews not to believe in a resurrection, let alone Gentiles. And what does Paul say? Paul says, <clears throat> 
In this chapter, he makes reference to resurrection over 20 times. He talks about resurrection, resurrect. He talks about being raised and raised from the dead. Resurrection. Listen to Paul's argument for the resurrection. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of what? First importance. See, that's why it's on the front page. The headline is front page news. Because it's of first or primary importance. And Paul says, you know what? I'm no different from you, those of you who are receiving this news. It's news that I had to also actively appropriate. He says, it's, 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 that, it's that which I also received. And what, is, and what is that good news? That Christ died for our sins. That's the good news in a nutshell. Christ died for our sins. And I know that I'm repeating it, but I don't care. I'm reminding you as I remind myself. Christ died for our sins and he did it in a certain way. Here we go. In accordance with the scriptures. This is titanic. This is gigantic. This is gigantic. He died, but he died in a certain way. And he says, Christ died according to the, according to the scriptures. That means that there was a plan in place in the past Ages before Jesus died on the cross. This is so important. It's so important that he says it twice in two verses at the end of verse 3 and the end of verse 4. I beg you, look in your Bible please with me in 1 Corinthians 15 as we go through this. I'm going to put the associated verses up on the screen so you don't have, you don't have to turn out of 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus' death wasn't just a random, haphazard, unexpected event. It was part of a plan, fam. They, and this plan started where? Remember creation, fall, redemption. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, remember? Who wrote Genesis 3.15? Moses. Jesus said in Luke 24, we saw it, Moses, the Psalms and the prophets, the Old Testament, it all speaks about me. Now, I've given you a verse from Moses, Genesis 3.15. Let me give you two other places where the crucifixion and death of Christ were predicted. In the Psalms and also in the prophets. First of all, the Psalms. We've got to move because it's cold. Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, where have you heard that? Jesus on the cross. Now, how many of you know that actually is the first line of a song? How many of you know that the Psalms are a collection of 150 songs? That first line... That line that Jesus shouted from the cross is the first line of Psalm 22. Now, I'm taking it for granted that 
for some degree, some of you have a working understanding of the crucifixion. Obviously you do. That's why you said that comes from the lips of Jesus on the cross. Now if you don't, then when you get home, compare Matthew 27 with Mark 13. Sorry, Matthew 27 and Mark 13. Let me start again. When you get home, have a look at Matthew 27 and Mark 15 together and compare them against Psalm 22. Because Matthew 27, Mark 15 are what they call synoptic. They're pretty much telling the same story. Look at them in comparison to what we're going to look at now in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, starting with verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, when Jesus screamed that from the cross, everyone would have been like, oh, he's singing that song. Which one? From, you know, Psalm 22. The song that we sing when... Why is he quoting from Psalm 22? Listen. Why are you so far from saving me, my God, from the words of my groaning? Listen and tell me that this isn't vividly descriptive of the crucifixion. Verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. At the crucifixion, that's exactly what they do. They stood there at the cross and said, he saved others, but look at him now. He's pathetic. He can't even save himself. What a shame. He goes on, he says, verse, verse 11, God, be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. How many of you know Jesus was on his ones when he went to the cross? No one was there to help him. Jesus was abandoned by all of his disciples, those who were supposed to be his friends. I mean, especially Judas. My gosh. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pot shirt. Pot shirt is, 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 is basically dry, broken pottery. You know how pottery gets dry? Like the unvarnished type of pottery. My strength is dry. My tongue sticks to my jaws. That's... That speaks up. That's exactly what happens when you're crucified because there's massive blood loss. You get what? Dehydrated. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me and a company of evildoers encircles me. Dogs. Jewish vernacular, that's a term for Gentiles. The Romans, they're surrounding me. He says, and look, oh my gosh. They, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Now, who wrote this? David. David never had his hands and feet pierced. See, this is prophetic. It's predictive of something that would happen to someone else in the future. I mean, it's like pull. This is gigantic. Look at verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is exactly what happened at the crucifixion of Jesus. What is strange is this psalm was written 1,000 years before crucifixion was even invented. Jesus died. How? In accordance with the scriptures. Psalm 16 Listen to David, the psalmist, 
refer to someone other than himself. And I'll show you how in a minute. Verse 8, Psalm 16. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells securely. Hmm. Your flesh or your body will be secure. Really? How? Verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul in Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. When a man's soul gets abandoned to Sheol, guess what that means? It means he's dead because Sheol is the grave. When someone is placed in a, in a casket in the grave or in the ground, what happens to their body? It begins to decompose, right? In another sense, the body begins to, cor to, to, to get corrupted. Verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul in Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. See, the only way to prevent that from happening is to bring, bring that body back from the dead before it begins to decompose. Now, in order for something to experience corruption or decomposition, it has to die. And if you don't get in there quick, it will rot. Think about fruit or an animal. As soon as it's plucked from the tree, immediately it doesn't seem like it, but it's already begun to degenerate. Second law of thermodynamics. Stuff don't get better. Your room don't get tidier if you leave it, or the garage, or the car don't get cleaner. How many, I mean, you know, the body don't get fitter. The man's are gonna play football today. If I go, I will watch. <laughs> Last time I went to play football, it's coming like something in my mind was saying, Robert, don't play football, don't play football, don't play football. I was good right up until the last, must be the last five minutes of the game. Someone made a pass and I was like, yeah, one, two. And I went and I, and I moved too quick. My, my Achilles just went ping. And that was me, you know. If it was one of them young guys, they would have been good in another week or two. You know how long I was off for? S six months. That, that was the last time I played football. That's the last time I ever gonna, unless I'm in the garden, like, maybe like, playing keep it up. Decomposition, things don't tend, things get worse. And, and you know, and in all, as soon as you pluck that fruit, you, as soon as you kill that animal, immediately you don't see it, but after a while, it begins to rot. Now, we all know this, but you see, the thing is, in order to intervene in the process of decomposition, you need a miracle. God, that, that's dead now. Plucked off the tree, animal ain't breathing. It's, it's, you have to get in there and do something miraculous that's going to bring that thing back to life again. We're talking about the resurrection here in Psalm 16, David did see corruption. That is, he died and his body decomposed. But see, this is speaking about another king, and it's not David. It's David's son, the son of David, Jesus, whose body didn't see corruption or decay. Why? Because he was raised on the third day. In the writings of 
Moses, which we've seen now, we looked at the Psalms 22 and 16. How about the prophets? Isaiah 53, I'll just read this, verse 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. Oh my gosh, the theology is deep, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes, remember he was lashed and beaten and whipped by those stripes, we were healed. All we like sheep, notice, not some of us, not just the ladies, not just young people, all we like sheep have gone astray and we've all turned to our own way. That's the root of sin. It's not that you lie or you steal or you have sex outside of marriage. It's the fact that you walk away from God. And now all of this stuff becomes the fruit of that. Turning away from, we need to turn back to God. And the Lord, even though we won't turn back, God laid, that's amazing to me, that God has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's turn back to him. Because it says the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Wow. Wow. Willing sacrifice. By oppression and judgment, verse 8, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who, cons- who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and he made his grave with the wicked. Here we go again. And with a rich man in his death. How many of you know Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb? Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus died. How? In accordance with the scriptures. Back to our text, if you look back. Not only did Jesus die, verse 4, he was what? He was buried. That point has to be made because some would like to suggest that Jesus fainted. You know about the swoon theory that he never actually died? Paul says, no. Roman soldiers were expert executioners. They would themselves be killed if they didn't do their job properly. Jesus was killed. He was buried in a tomb by a Roman guard and protected by a Roman guard. But it didn't end there. Paul also says that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. How about the prophets? Jonah. Like Jonah who was in the fish for three days, 
Jesus said in similar fashion, I will raise on the third day. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus was raised according to the Old Testament scriptures and all on account of our sins. Now that's the historical evidence. Historical for those in the first century because it was predicted hundreds of years before them, but also historical for us who live 3,000 years removed. But now we move to the fulfillment that was current for these New Testament believers, but is historically ancient for us here in the 21st century. It was front page news for them, literally. The ink was still wet, because this was only about 20 years after Jesus was actually crucified. News that we, though, have to, to dig into the historical ancient archives to find. But the fact still remains intact. How many of you know that a historical fact is a historical fact and Jesus Christ is a historical figure? Even though it's old, it's still substantial evidence that demands a verdict. I forget, that's the name of a book, isn't it? I can't remember who wrote Who is it? Lee Strobel. No, that's not the Lee Strobel one. Josh McDowell. Lee Strobel wrote evident, um, evidence for the case for Christ. Amen. Amen. Case for Christ. So, even though it's old, it's still substantial evidence. It has been faithfully reported and documented for us. Now, with regard to Jesus' resurrection, there are witnesses here to testify to this reality. In another place, Paul says, you know what? This stuff didn't happen in a corner. That is the resurrection. This was public and has been extensively reported. BBC, CNN, Al Jazeera, they all covered it. The breakfast news story can be substantiated. And Paul gives five eyewitness reports that testify to the fact that Jesus resurrected. Here's the first in verse 5. And that he, Jesus, appeared to who? Cephas or Peter. Now, significant and distinct from the next group that he's going to mention because it was Peter that denied Jesus. I mean, if there was anyone who potentially would rather Jesus not come back from the dead, in a sense, you could say it was Peter. And who knows? I probably would argue strongly that one of the reasons why Jesus appeared to Peter specifically was to encourage him. Because how many of you know he probably was really messed up? We know, not even probably, he wept bitterly when he denied Jesus, didn't he? Peter was messed up. And see, maybe Jesus appears to him personally just to encourage him. Because how many of you know, Peter's going to be a don, like come the birth of the church, Right? And it's amazing how that encouragement must have worked because within a, a matter of days, within 50 days, here comes Peter, Acts chapter 2, preaching like a man forgiven. Peter had abandoned Jesus, the friend that had been so good to him. How about the second group? Who are they? The 12. Excluding Judas, actually, it really was 11. It says the 12 because that's the term that the disciples were known by. It's like the 12, yeah, like mandem. It was a term that described the collective, even though they were one man down, right, 
who would eventually be replaced in Acts chapter 1, chapter 2, Acts chapter 1, 2, Acts chapter 1 or 2. And then also, who wasn't present? There was, there was someone else who wasn't present, apart from Judas. The one who doubted. He'd be like, what? Jesus, come back from the dead. No, man, I don't believe that. Fine. I, until I see him, until I can put my hand in his, in his nail prints. And Thomas, so this was just a collective term for the man then, because Jesus is going to appear to Thomas a bit later. Um, Luke 24. This new laptop. Luke 24, verse 36 to 48. As they were talking about these things, this is when Jesus appears to them. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. You'd have to say that because you see a man come back from the dead. It's peak, right? You're just going to go, peace. <laughs> it's, just, it's all right. Verse 37. But they, they were startled and frightened, to say the least, and thought that they'd seen a duppy, seen a, a ghost, seen a spirit. And he said to them, come on now, why are you troubled? <laughs> why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet. Man, Thomas ain't here at this point. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, some mixed emotions going on, he said to them, have you anything to eat? You're like, wow, why did he say this? Because he's going to prove that he's not just a ghost. He's going to prove that he's got a physical body. And he says, um, and when they, had, when they had said this, they said, da, 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 marvel, this is him. They gave him, verse 42, a piece of, of, of broiled fish, a piece of steamed fish. And he took it and ate before them, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Remember, Jesus told him three times at least that he was going to die and he was going to be taken by the hands of sinners. He was going to die. He was going to be buried and he would be raised on the third day. He told him, but they didn't get it. He says, look, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And that's what we prayerfully hope that the Lord will do with us. Verse 46, and said to them, thus it is written that this, the Christ should suffer and on the third day, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. Wow, witnesses. Witnesses who can testify to what they saw. You're going to tell a man, you know me, who says, I, I was there, fam. I, I saw it. Notice, these first two sets of witnesses are who? They're Jesus' friends. We'll come back to that. Okay, the third witness report, verse 6. Let's move. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 500 some foolishly argue that those who saw the resurrected Jesus were hallucinating. How are you going to have 500 people all hallucinating at the same time? Here is the possible account in Matthew 28, verse 9 and 10. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. <laughs> and they came up and they took hold of his feet. And what did they do? 
you shouldn't have any trouble worshiping Jesus. I know I really struggled when I first became a Christian. Worshiping God, I was cool with. But worshiping Jesus, at that time, I didn't realize that he is God, the second member of the Trinity. But when I saw a text like this, especially through Matthew, where Jesus is worshipped, I'm like, okay. From it's in the text, I'm good. And it's in the text. It says they worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, now don't worship me because I'm only a man or I'm only an angel. No, he didn't say that. Verse 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. See, this is the big group. This is not the twelve. And you see that if you look later in verse 16 of that chapter, that Jesus appeared to the 12 later, which would have made them distinct from this group in verse 9 and 10. Jesus appeared to this large group, of which some were still alive, says Paul. I mean, they could. They, they, Paul's like, there's some people that are still alive that you can interview and cross-examine if you think that what I'm saying ain't true. You can actually go to their house and ask them if you don't believe me. You can go to Nazareth. You can go to al Bishira Street. It's in the old city. That's actually a literal street in Nazareth. And you can go and knock on his door and ask Aaron ben David if you don't believe me. Some witnesses have died, fallen asleep, but many are still alive. That's big. This is very clever reporting. Now here comes the fourth witness in support of the coherent, cohesive, indisputable evidence. Verse 7. Then he appeared, Jesus appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Now who's James? James is Jesus' brother. Jesus' blood brother. Jesus' half brother. Same mom, different dad. How many of you know that Jesus came from a blended family? I love it. Joseph, he's a star. He's number one stepdad. You've got some people be like, oh man, I'm not taking a woman who's got kids. Thank God that, Jesus, that, that Joseph did. Jesus appeared to James. James is his brother who had previously hated on him. Remember? In John chapter 7, <laughs> Starting at verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were onto him. They were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews', the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers, this is Jesus' blood brothers, this is Jesus in his yard, right? Jesus' brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples, your little disciples, they also may see the works that you're doing. For no, no one works in secret. If he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world, innit? <laughs> They're being sarcastic. Notice verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. What a great bit of evidence. Someone who really knew Jesus well. I mean, he was living with Jesus. You couldn't pull the wool over James's eyes. As much as he hated on Jesus, he couldn't hate on him because he knew and if he didn't, the resurrection convinced him. And you know, James later on became an apostle and even one of the authors of Scripture. 
speak. Okay, fifth and final witness. To take the stand and give evidence. Verse 8. Last of all, says Paul, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul didn't see Jesus in the flesh before his death. But afterwards he did. It's in Acts chapter 9. One born late, as it were, not of the original group, but a witness of the risen Christ nonetheless. This is amazingly significant because Paul wasn't a friend. He wasn't one of Jesus' brethren. Paul wasn't a family member. How many of you know Paul was an enemy? In Acts chapter 9, Pastor P must be laughing at me right now. Acts 9 verse 1, but Saul, which was his name before he became Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and it asked them for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, any Christians, any followers of Christ, men or women, he's a hater, he, bring, he may bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, doing his thing, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? There's something that's going on that causes him at that point to say, ooh, whoever you are, I know that, ooh, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing, so they led him by the hand. Imagine this brother that's going in to take out people, going to go, going to go, look at him, he's pathetic. He's a joker, look at him. They have to lead him by the hand and brought him, and brought, and brought him into Damascus. You know what, we've got to be careful, you know, because there's one day when you feel like, you know what, I'm kind of on top of the world. I'm feeling fit looking good, just come from the gym. You ever seen a picture of Muhammad Ali or seen the clips? See, I'm getting old. I can't even do the little shuffle. But how about looking at him now? So much to say, not enough time. They led him by the hand. And brought him into Damascus, verse 9. And for three days he was without sight and he neither ate nor drank. How many of you know he's deeply affected by this experience? That was the dawn of a new day in the life of Saul, in the life of Paul. That was the day that Saul was born for the second time. He'd been born naturally, physically. But you know, at this point he's now born again spiritually. Different people have different conversion experiences. You may be here today and you hear this message and you're like, wow, I've, that's, I never heard such fantastic news in my whole life. I receive it. And you're going to hold on to it 
until you see the Lord Jesus face to face. But you know what? Then you've got some other people. For some of you, it may have been a motorbike or a car accident. Here for Saul, Jesus had to box him off his horse. However God saves you, just make sure you get saved. And I wouldn't wait for the, the, like the punch in the face. That don't make sense to me. If, if, if you understand this, just, just receive it, innit? And don't make God have to break you like he did, like he did Saul. Paul is evidently grateful that God saved him from his foolishness, right? Look at verse 9. For I'm the least of the apostles, even though hmm, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Notice that Paul, even though he's a seasoned, mature Christian, he's an apostle, he still struggles as he remembers his past. And that's true for many of us, isn't it? We look back on our past and we're like, He feels that he's unworthy to be saved sometimes because of his past sinful lifestyle. Yet he's encouraged, isn't he? And he even boasts, but not in himself, but in the forgiveness and the grace of God. He says, yes, I'm a sinner. I'm the worst. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary. See, don't let God's grace toward you be in vain. On the contrary. I worked harder than any of them. I never ever thought that I'd be a pastor. I didn't ever, ever think that I'd be a Christian. You know what I'm saying? And I find myself in this place and I'm, I'm working and I'm doing and I, I, I flop more than I, you know what I'm saying? Than I, but I'm amazed. I look at my life and I'm like, wow. But it's the grace of God that's working in me, that's working in Pastor E, that's working in Pastor P, that's working in the elders here in, in the church, that's working in, in those who are working and serving in the church, those who are who are in the back in children's ministry and for those of you who are on the camera and running the sound and you know what I'm saying for those who are running out the service early to go and prepare the teas and the coffees and the grace of God is working in all of us you who are sitting here maybe for the first time hearing this message may that grace that, that comes to you may it not be in vain allow it to work in you He says, I worked harder than any of them. That is the other apostles, but he's not bigging up himself. He says, it was not me. It was the grace of God that is in me. It's the grace of God that saves us. It's the grace of God that changes us. It's the gospel that saves us, and it's the same gospel that keeps on saving us. Someone said that sanctification is just a greater understanding of justification, and I believe that to be true. When you understand what Jesus done for you, when he justified you, when he forgave you of your sins, that affects the way that you, that can't but affect the way that you live your life. And it's not do this and don't do that. You can't watch telly, you can't go cinema, you can't wear makeup, you can't get a tattoo, you can't. Even I've said that in the past. <laughs> in, my religious, in my religious moments, right? It's the grace of God that changes us. Bible says it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. It's when you're overwhelmed with, Lord, you've been so good. Look, how, look at me. Look at, my, look at the things I've done to you. 
Look at the way I've treated you. Look how I despised your goodness and your forgiveness and the fact that you died for my sins. Forgive me, I'm so sorry. I'm overwhelmed by your goodness. You keep pouring out your goodness on me. I don't deserve it. That's what changes. It's the grace of God. He mentions it three times in like three or four verses. That's the message that they preached and it's also the message that we preach. Verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Like I said earlier, if you believe it, will you receive it? And then when you received it, will you hold fast to it? This is great encouragement for non-Christians to become Christians and for Christians to start acting like Christians. Grace. Grace for you who need salvation and grace for you who have salvation. You can see why this deserves to be front page news. Would you pray with me as I ask the band, the praise team to come join me? Now I would remind you brothers and sisters of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this good news. Thank you for this this great news for us sinners. Would you please help us to receive it? Would you please help us to believe it? And would you help us to take our stand in it? And all for the sake of the Lord Jesus. It's nothing that we've done. We couldn't do this for ourselves. And that's so humbling. But it's so encouraging. Help us to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Because when we think we're strong, we're actually weak. But it's when we realize that we're weak, I can't contribute anything to this. That's when we become strong. And God's strength is made perfect in our weakness father thank you be strong in us lord we're we're weak lord there's only a few of us but with with you we're strong we can take on an army lord with you even though there's only a few of us lord we can turn the world upside down and it's all because of your grace To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.